Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt. Do I take the week's financial news? That can be a bit confusing. Misleading and take you off course, and I help to make it actionable, understandable, and clear. What a show for you this week. It's a great one. We're going to be looking at a sad article that's very instructive for us about an entrepreneur that sells his business, makes a pot of cash, and then walks into a very difficult situation. What could this entrepreneur have done differently? We then have Robert Kiyosaki, the famed author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who is now turned into the false prophet of doom. But at some point, I need to regurgitate what he's telling you. He says, God have mercy on us all. He's one of the biggest bubble in the history of all things. And he's urging us to do lots of things. Should we take his advice? I think you can probably tell by my tone. And then one of my favorites, Mr. Peter Malouk on Twitter, three data points that he issued via his Twitter feed that I thought were very instructive for me. These are things that I look at and thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize the dynamic would be that impactful. So one of these is what happens when we're investing regularly, what sort of underperformance cash has versus the S&P 500, and what were the returns for you if you invested when things were at their worst, when the death of equities came out on August 13th of 1979. So we'll look at that data at the top. <clears throat> this is from Advisor Hub. Miriam Rosen, February 22nd, 2023. Oil entrepreneur sues Wells, LPL, and the broker after $5 million securities-based loan strategy backfires. Oof. Well, I read the article further. It's a He's in the asphalt business. We can call him an oil entrepreneur. That's fine. But let's define some things so we can understand the article better. What is a security-based loan? And why is it that advisors push them so much? I see this a lot, particularly when folks come to me from larger banks and say, hi, I'm here for financial advice. I see a lot of these products pushed. Okay, what happens? Sometimes they can be used perfectly in a perfectly fine manner, but other times there's a nefarious reason why your big bank is pushing these on you or your, or your broker. So let's say you own, well, we'll just take this example in this article, let's say you owned $10 million in stock and you needed to pay someone money, say the IRS. You can simply sell securities and pay the tax or you can borrow money against the securities and pay whatever you need to pay, the tax, and you get to keep your securities. You don't have to sell them, but you now have a loan against those securities. Now, that may sound like a perfectly reasonable thing to you, but why do you think an advisor at a big bank would push that on you? Ah, for my seasoned listeners, you know where I'm headed. These are not hourly financial advisors, are they? No, they are not. How are they compensated? Follow the money. Well, the assets under management game, okay? So if you are an advisor and you get paid a percentage of assets under management and your client is going to reduce their holdings to pay tax or do anything, you will make less the next year. So if you go from 10 million to 7 million and you were making 1%, you went from 100 grand income to 70 grand income a year on that client. Well, you don't want to do that, so you get to double dip. These folks will make money promoting a lending product, 
So the, the advisor gets a little pop for that. There are different incentive structures that pay them. Plus, they get to ensure that their beautiful annuity called an AUM fee keeps flowing. Keeps flowing. Keep that money flowing, right? So I'm painting, I'm painting the worst picture possible that could occur. I mean, in a, in a very positive light, you could say that this, in fact, was the best thing for the client, and that is possible. But the fact that it affects the advisor's income so dramatically means it's really bad. Well, what happened in this situation? Well, Curtis D. Bale, who lives in Beaufort County, South Carolina, accused his former broker, John Doherty, as well as Wells and LPL, Wells Fargo and LPL, of breach of fiduciary duty, breach of contract, and violation of state securities laws. Okay, well, why is he so upset? Well, this broker encouraged his client, Bale, to take out the loan in 2013 to cover $5 million in taxes and other obligations after he sold his business. He sold the Tuscaloosa, Alabama-based Warrior Asphalt for a $9.5 million profit. The broker said the loan would allow Bale to continue to generate income from the full proceeds to cover living expenses and pay down interest. Hmm. But it, and this is what the article accused, but it really allowed this broker to benefit by charging management fees on the gross investment while also receiving credit for interest payments on the loan. And this, the, the, the lawsuit alleges it left the client unknowingly exposed to great market risk. Now, I think it takes two to tango. So as much as I come to the defense of investors as much as I can, eh, sometimes we hear what we want to hear, don't we? Hey, that, that, that greed voice can be just as loud as the fear voice. Hey, I can, I can actually help you make more money here. Just don't get out of the market. Stay in it. Borrow the money. Well, so the broker doesn't recommend paying on the loan. And this is what the data says. This client's accounts needed to generate at least a 3.5% return just to pay the advisory fee and interest on the account. I'm going to say that again because I know half of you, if you're listening, should have fallen out of your seats. This client's account at Wells and then later at LPL, it needed to return 3.5% just to break even every year. That was the hurdle rate. Can you imagine? Three and a half percent was what it took this poor soul. Now, of course, me, I get, I can get so inflamed emotion. I, I feel like that's theft. It feels like theft to me, and yet it's probably written in plain language and somewhere. But wow. Oh, it makes you want to throw up in a trash can. I'll. I'll you can pause the podcast right now and throw up if you need to, because I'm, I'm about to. Oh, so 3.55% is what he had to do. So wouldn't you? Here we go. The strategy unraveled. So this seven-year strategy unraveled in March of 2020 during the market's pandemic-induced slide when this advisor sold off all the client's equity holdings to protect himself and his bank from losing collateral on the loan. Okay, so what's happening? The borrower is still slave to the lender. You remember that scripture? The rich rule over the poor. Well, here you go. This advice when you enter into these agreements, oh yeah, I can, I can, you know, I can borrow money in securities. Well, the broker really is in control and can margin call you and say he just started selling, 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 so that the loan was always safe. So he his holdings were reduced to 5.8 million in cash and only 130 grand in equities. He locked in these losses. This lawsuit alleged. And then this, this broker engaged in frantic trading, trying to recoup the losses, including buying precious metal stocks and day trading Vanguard ETFs. Ugh. Uh, even though the risk tolerance on the account was moderate, the broker says no wrongdoing occurred. Uh, these allegations are without merit. 
the investments in which they complained were well within their objectives. Blah, 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 gobbledygook, lawyer talk. And this, this is another little chair on top. The broker also recommended that this client invest 300 grand in Jamaica-based medical marijuana grower Jamaica Cures LLC. And all those dollars disappeared. So that's just another, and oh, and here you go. Now, here's what else he did wrong. Wouldn't, and when this client moved to LPL, he alleges the new firm didn't do due diligence and recommended a terrible strategy. So what's, ugh, what's going on here? When you have a windfall, or when you don't, what people do when they make money, I, I see this all the time, whether they have a lot or a little, you, you just gravitate towards relationships instead of learning. If I had a choice, I would lock someone in a, in a room for a year. I wouldn't actually even do Grubhub. I'd let you take a little food under the door. There'd be bathroom breaks, etc. And I would make you read. I'd make you read, read, read. You cannot receive any phone calls from friends in the investment management space. You can receive no deals, nothing. You must stay in cash for a year. Shorter, if you pass my, my test that I'd give you. But you've got to read. Little Book of Common Sense Investing by Bogle. Civil Path to Wealth by Collins. There's some other ones. I'd, you, know, you, you get those two down. And then if you pass those, we'd, we'd move on. You've got to, you've got to, this person, this poor soul, blew up a lifetime of labor. He knew the asphalt business. Oh, he could run circles around us in the asphalt business. If someone tried to cheat him in the asphalt business deal, this guy spent so many years in the asphalt business. Man, he would never get cheated in the asphalt business. He, if you're trying to throw low-quality rock in there, the slurry from the refinery you're buying from in quality, he'd sniff it out in a heartbeat. But when it came to investing, he didn't read the books. He didn't spend time. Didn't listen to the RHF market update. Maybe he is listening. Forgive me, sir, if you are. I hope you're listening. But it's a lesson to us all. We are no better than this person. This this gentleman was smart, hardworking, sharp, built a great business. His error occurred when he trusted a brand instead of doing his own mind work. As the great Charlotte, Charlotte Mason instructed, all education is self-education. We must do our own mind work. That's what Charlotte just hammers on us. You cannot abdicate here. He abdicated and lost millions as a result. Don't do it. Don't do it. Mr. Robert Kiyosaki. This guy's that uh, canary in the coal mine, but he's perpetually chirping and has been for what I can tell over a decade. Maybe he's been doing it longer. But he wrote a great book that I think is worth reading for any aspiring real estate investor or anyone else. Rich Dad, Poor Dad talks about the, um, the mindset that someone needs to have when seeking to build wealth. And he's probably too Pollyanna about debt and using it, but I think, I think people can use debt perfectly well in real estate and do fine. But here he goes. This is just so dramatic. God have mercy on us all. Robert Kiyosaki warned that the economy is the biggest bubble in history and urged investors to dump paper assets. What I want to take issue with in this article, it's this is an article you'd expect it to be. Oh, um, he wants you to, uh, here he says, I believe the economy is the biggest bubble in history. Since a lot of financial assets have gotten cheaper, it might be tempting to buy the dip, but that's not what he says to do. Many of you know I do not invest in equities, bonds, ETFs, or mutual funds. Please do not listen to what I'm going to say next. I would get out of paper assets, he says, adding the world economy is not a market. Instead, Kiyosaki likes three real assets for protection. Look at, here's each one of them. Gold and silver, Bitcoin, and I guess those are the three. Gold, silver, Bitcoin. Um, I want to take issue, I want us to take captive some thoughts here when, this is not just Kiyosaki, there are plenty of others any time of tumult in the news or financial upheaval, which certainly you could argue 2020 or Federal Reserve's hiking of interest rates as, as 
produced. It, people like this come out and they, they say, oh, yeah, these paper assets. What, what, what is a paper asset? If I own a share of Berkshire Hathaway, does he consider that a paper asset? He does. If I own a S&P 500 mutual fund, is that a paper asset? Kiyosaki said, yes, it is. Well, why do, why do people say that they don't like paper assets? Well, what's, but Bitcoin in his mind is not a paper asset. We've got we've to cut through that noise and realize that property rights, private property rights, everything is a paper asset. It's always paper. Paper says what we own and don't own. If you own a share of Walmart, that's a paper asset. It's what's behind the paper that matters, right? You have a whole lot of Walmart super centers and real estate and trucks and profit streams from warehouses and employees and trademarks. and This is all Walmart. That's, Kiyosaki says it's a paper asset. Well, I, I don't really care whether you call it a paper asset or not. Well, let's extend that then to index funds because he's taking aim at our beloved index fund. Well, it's just a whole lot of paper assets, right? Well, what's behind the paper? Well, the beauty of the market cap index fund, that's an index fund that's sorted based on the size of companies within it, the S&P 500 being the famous one. Sure, it's paper, but in, in America, in the world, in the developed world, and developing world, it's that piece of paper, those property rights that say you have a fractional share of ownership. Well, I don't see the difference in that and owning, owning a gold coin under your bed. Now, you might get to you know, grab it with your hand. And that might be your lovey at night. It may help you sleep better. But the, the same property rights that are letting you squeeze that gold coin in your hand are the same ones that let Walmart have titled all this land and warehouses. It's the same strand of rights. Perhaps if we had our legal expert on. I'm talking to one. He may come on. I've got an estate planner in my pocket that may, may do a Q&A with us. <clears throat> We're negotiating the terms. But that's the same group of property rights. So don't, get, don't, don't be alarmed by the Kiyosakis of the world that tell you, oh, you'll just have nothing. You'll just be a stroke of a legislator's pen. It's all gone. It's only what's under your mattress. It's only what's in, buried in your backyard. It's only what you can grasp with your hands. Those folks typically end up in a much worse spot over a long period of time. So have confidence, investor, in the index fund. Do not bend your knee to the Bitcoin, gold, or silver bugs. Stay on the straight and narrow. And then to, to close, we've got great data. So this is Peter Malouk, Creative Planning. Great follow on Twitter. Three data points. Okay, first one, market timing. This is a reminder that if we can invest, we should invest. Sometimes it's good to stay in cash, but... He highlights the growth of $2,000 invested annually in the S&P 500 from 2001 to 2020. I'll say that again. The growth of $2,000, so you're investing $2,000 annually every year in the S&P 500, a big old index fund from 2001 to 2020. And it shows how much money you have at the end of it. Did you know if you just stayed in cash, you'd have $44,000, just about. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because 2000 bucks a year... Okay, over 20 years, that's 40 grand, but you got some interest on your cash, so about 44 grand. If you had perfect timing, meaning, perfect timing, meaning, you invested the 2000 at the perfect moment each of those years. So like maybe in March it dipped and you just, you bought right then, boom, perfect timing. You ended up with $151,000. Now, if you just invested immediately, irrespective of timing, you made $135,000. That means just boom, you know, you just got the money, you put it at the beginning of the year. If you dollar cost average, you made a little less, about 100, eh, pretty close, about 135 grand, a little less than that, 134 grand. If you had bad timing, 
This means, let's say you kind of held the money and just messed it up. Like, oh, I'm going to invest in April, but it should have invested in March, and you're just going to play the game. You had 121 grand. Well, let's compare. Had you stayed in cash, you made 44 grand. If you had bad timing, 121 grand. Perfect timing, 151 grand. Invest immediately, $135 cost averaging, 134. Well, what's the lesson, students? The lesson is staying in cash over 20 years is worse than having terrible timing. Get on the train. Get on the train. And the idea that you need perfect timing, that, is not, should, that should not be your takeaway. The takeaway should be just invest immediately. Because what you should know is perfect timing is hindsight. 2020, we can look in the past to get perfect timing. We can't do it on a go-forward basis. No way. So just invest immediately. You'd make triple what you made staying in cash. And the, the difference between perfect timing and investing immediately wasn't that great. It was about 16 grand. That's something, but you can't do that anyway. And then this is another cash versus investing. This is the average underperformance of cash versus the S&P 500 from 1928 to, 19, to 2022. Excuse me. 1928 to 2022, the average underperformance of cash versus the S&P 500. The average underperformance in one year is 8% meaning the S&P 500 did better by 8%. Over a five-year period, the average underperformance, cash did 53% worse. Over a 10-year period, cash did 158% worse. Over the average 20-year period, cash did you know, 705%. So that's the delta between cash and the S&P 500 over these time periods. So the lesson again is Cash can be fine, especially right now. You're in 4.5% on your Vanguard account. I love that. I love that. It's great if you have short-term deal, but if you have long-term money, don't be seduced by these cash returns. Put it, put it to work. Even in a 4.5% environment on your Vanguard money market, put it to work. And then to close, last data point, the S&P 500 cumulative total return from, and, and we're splicing the data here, but this is from August 13th of 1979 to August 13th of 1999. So we kind of picked and choose here. 1999 was the peak or so, 2000 maybe, of the dot-com bubble. 1979 was the trough. This is the Death of Equities article. It was a famous article. came out in Business Week. The return you, you achieved had you invested when everyone was at their most bearish. This Death of Equities article came out. And you'd understand why in 1979. The return was 17.4% annualized a year, which equaled 2,375% total. So that's pretty good, right? Very few people did it. Very few people did it. You had to hold on through the 80s. There's a little boop, 1987. I see the boop, little drop down on that. You know, and there are other little troughs along the way. But that's a, that was a reminder to me that, wow, uh, at the moment when the world thinks... You need to throw in the talent investing. That's probably going to be the hardest time to invest. That was a very hard time to invest in 1979 for a lot of reason. Um, here it says, the death of equities, how inflation is destroying the stock market. It's kind of like now. Everybody and their brother was saying, you got to get hard assets. These paper Kiyosakis of the world, these paper assets are foolish. Paper schmaper. I didn't understand the legal rights as well as they should. So a data point to consider. So as always, keep those costs low, keep that investing simple, keep that time horizon long. That's what's going to give you the best shot on your investing journey. Tune in next week.